This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the It's Not TV episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance of, it turns out, this week, the entertainment industry. I'm... Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with my colleague Emily Peck. Hello, hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And we have another Felix, the, the best Felix hey, hey. on the show this week. All right. Felix Gillette, introduce yourself. I'm Felix Gillette. I'm the other Felix in the media <laughs> that does business stuff. Um, I sometimes answer Felix Salmon's email and phone calls <laughs> inadvertently. It has happened over the years. I work at Bloomberg. I'm a writer and editor at Bloomberg and co-author with my friend John Copeland of the New York Times of It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. Uh, we're going to talk about HBO a lot. We are going to talk about the rest of the entertainment industry. We're going to talk about, you know, whether Max is a better name than Felix or HBO. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're going to talk about the NFL and boxing. We're going to talk about PewDiePie and YouTube in the Slate Plus segment. We're going to talk about sexism in the numbers round. We have a bunch of stuff to get through. And of course, because we have to, we're going to talk about Rupert Murdoch quite a lot. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So seeing as how you've just published an entire book about HBO, why not start with HBO? Yeah. Which, is it true that HBO Max is going to be rebranded as just Max? I think that is true. That's what I've been hearing. Just Max. And then, like, basically all of us who don't, do linear television anymore, which is going to be most people pretty soon. The HBO brand is just going to be some weird, like, button Yeah, in there'll be a tab on Max. It's just like, yeah. you know, on Disney Plus, there's a tab for National Geographic. In some ways, I think it's good, because I think the initial idea to name the whole streaming service HBO Max was confusing. You know, it was like, we're going to broaden the service. You know what HBO was. HBO was this prestigious thing. And it was, you know, somewhat of a niche network. And they wanted to make it something for everybody. And so I think, you know, the idea of this mastige play where you take a prestige brand and take it down market, I think is a smart move in the short term. But I think there are risks in the long term because eventually you just end up diluting the brand. I mean, I think, you know, this has happened Hundreds of times in retail before. Uh, I mean, that was that was what happened to Gucci in the 70s, yeah, right? Yeah, Gucci, Cadillac. I mean, everyone tries it because, like, in the short term, it's great. Suddenly you can broaden the base and tell everybody, oh, you're getting this incredibly special thing for much less, and it's going to appeal to more people. Is there a good example of, like, a show that is on HBO Max and that managed to get a kind of halo effect from being on HBO Max, even though it wasn't really technically HBO? Yeah, I think so. Hacks, you know? I okay. think most people, if you ask them, you're like, is that a HBO show or an HBO Max show? I think most people would think that was an HBO show, but it wasn't. And I think it benefited from the history of HBO branding and comedy and, you know. Do you think that uh, most consumers even... Uh, register these brand shifts because I get confused about which prestige show is on which streaming service. It's or, really yeah. hard. Like every couple of years, there's a new 
website which you're meant to go to like can i stream it or just watch or yes. something where you type in the name of the show and it may or may not tell you where it may or may not be streaming yeah i think that's part of the problem that the streamers are having is that you know you want to watch the shows you want to watch you're not going to subscribe to just one of the services you're usually going to subscribe to a couple and you're going to end up getting frustrated when it doesn't have the one show you want to watch and you know it's like oh i want to see fleischman in trouble, and it's like, ah, oh, wait, that's not on HBO, that's not on Netflix, that's that, not uh, the, on the, Paramount the Plus. Great, the, great not... thing, the great thing about <laughs> that, and, I, and we had this conversation with Taffy, was like, it was on something called FX, but it wasn't on FX. The only way you could see it was on Hulu, and I was talking to someone from Hulu about this, and they were saying Netflix and HBO Max always wind up getting the most Emmy nominations, oh, yeah. except for apparently Hulu gets the most if you don't separate it out between Hulu and FX, but they do separate it out, and it gets very confusing. Yeah, you got to pile them all into yeah. you know, one brand to compete it's these so days. It's so confusing. How it's many so are confusing. there? There's Paramount and Peacock. That that throws me... I, I think that's the one that just threw me over the edge, the I mean, two different... Clearly, at some point, if you fast-forward this whole thing five, ten years down the road, they're going to consolidate more, right? Nobody so how wants many, five how or six many, How many are there going to be? Three. Three. Yeah. Who will they be? It'll be Disney Plus, it'll be Netflix, and it'll be all the other services <laughs> in one. What happens to Apple? Do they get out of the business entirely, or do they wind up getting much, 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 much bigger? I don't know. This period that we're in right now, I think, will determine that. Because right now, you know, all of the legacy players like HBO Max, like Peacock, like Paramount Plus, they're all under a lot of pressure suddenly to stop losing so much money. And so they're going to have to pull back. You know, people are talking about, oh, it's the end of peak TV. But for Apple and for Amazon, they have no such pressures, right? I mean, they have other issues going on in the economy. But basically, it's always been a loss leader for them anyways. They're not measuring their profitability of these streaming services in the same way as their competition. And so if they want to go out right now and while everybody else is pulling back, if they want to just start spending like crazy, I think it is a moment where they could – really pull away. And you see, you know, YouTube TV just got the NFL Sunday ticket, right? Google's like, meh, sure, we'll pay $2 billion a year for this thing. That's clearly going to lose a lot of money in the short term, but we're going to pull more people into our TV ecosystem. Amazon has, you know, NFL rights now. Amazon paid, what, like more than a billion dollars for the Lord of the Ring prequel series. And again, there's no economic sense to that other than like, well, you know, we're pulling you in. We're getting more prime subscribers. We can hang on to them. So they're not under the same pressure as Netflix, as HBO Max. I, I did want to ask you about, about sports. I'm glad you mentioned yes. tickets, mm -hmm. which, you know, I don't know. I'm, not, I'm very unclear how tickets work. But I know that the NFL is insanely sophisticated about how it divvies up its games and sells them off for, the, for maximum revenue. Do you consider sports to be a central part of the entertainment industry yes and it's the one part which weirdly it's where like rump fox is still a really big player right? yeah yeah and it's going to be more important in this coming phase because suddenly look at netflix for example their whole existence up to this point they've been advertising free right yeah. and reed hastings always said no and, we're and sports free 
and sports free. Yeah. And now suddenly, you know, Wall Street's saying we're not going to value you the same way. We want to see profits. And what happens? We're going to add an advertising tier to our service. But the problem is that the whole service has always been a, you know, binge operating, evergreen, on-demand thing. You need for advertisers to get people to show up at a certain time at a certain place. And is that important to advertisers that people see the ad at a certain time rather than that they just see the ad at some not point? Not for 100% of the advertising, but for a lot of them. If you have like a car sale going on, if you have a movie premiere happening, like you need to get people to watch the thing at the right time. And that's why sports are so important because it's a live event. It happens at a specific time. Everyone wants to tune in at that time. And so I think in order to really max out and and optimize their new growing advertising business for Netflix, but also for Warner Brothers Discovery and HBO Max, who are also playing around with advertising on these streaming services, Amazon, everyone that wants to do this to grow their advertising on these streaming services, they're going to need live events. And yeah, you can do it somewhat with music concert. You can do it somewhat with comedy. But really what we're talking about is sports. Is the ad buying process more akin to broadcast or digital video ad buys? Or is it some hybrid of the two? It's definitely a hybrid of the two. But I think they're, you know, they're figuring that out. And a lot of it is going to depend. I mean, right now it's kind of a crazy time, too, because they're adding all these new advertising options at a time when, A, the advertising market is pretty weak right now. A lot of advertisers are pulling back. And it is this big shift happening in digital advertising where, you know, Facebook and Google have just dominated that space for the past five, ten years. And suddenly everyone's pulling back at a time when the grip of Google and Facebook on that market seems to be let, you know, letting up a lot. You have TikTok, you have, you know, Netflix, you have multiple big players coming into that space, Amazon making a huge play in the advertising, digital advertising space. So I think, I don't know, it's going to be, it's all going to shake out in the next so, two or three years. Let, let me just quickly follow up on this question about like tentpole advertising opportunities, aka sports. Mm-hmm. Let's say, you know, to use your example, I am a movie studio and I have a big movie coming out on Friday Mm -hmm. and I want to get everyone into the movie theater so I want to advertise it. Why is it better for me to advertise on a big American football game on Thursday than it is to just go to Netflix and say, just reach all of your people on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday and just do all of the ads all weekend? Why, Why is the getting a bunch of people all seeing the ad at the same time better than just a bunch of people seeing the ad over a period of a few days? I think it's easier if they're all amassed in one place. It's an easier transaction than trying to aggregate all those different groups across an on-demand platform. You know, I think there's a somewhat uh, of a... Wait, hang on, hang on. Now, you see, I think this is so obvious to you. It's mm-hmm. not obvious to me because I don't think these ways. Yeah. It's about reaching a certain target audience, right? And that if you are just aggregating across Netflix, then Netflix will just wind up serving that ad to that broad Netflix audience. But if what you really want is to reach the 15 to 25-year-old men... Mm-hmm then that's going to be harder on broad Netflix than it is if you have, like, a sports show on. Definitely. Right. And it's also going to hit that viewer in a, a different way. I mean, if you're watching something live and you're there's some drama involved and you're somewhat attached to that drama, you're not going to 
you're going to experience those advertisements in a slightly different way than if you're casually watching something right. on demand and pausing it and then like, ah, I can always watch this later. The, like, the adjacencies actually matter. Like some it shows, does. is are we seeing that already, that some shows have higher prestige and therefore higher demand from advertisers? Yeah, and I think also, I mean, that's one way in which the old HBO model you know, in the old network TV model is suddenly coming back into vogue a little bit. I mean, you think about like five, ten years ago, people were always complaining, oh, like Netflix puts all of its dramas. If you want to watch a new season of a drama, they put all the episodes on the surface at once. You can just watch them at your own leisure. Why is, you know, why does HBO keep doing one episode a week? But now we're seeing with shows like White Lotus where you can get people to show up every Sunday, watch the new episode, talk about it. It's, yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of value of delivering that audience at a particular time. How existential is this flight of the NFL to streaming, to the networks? Could a network ever go out of business? (laughs) I think it's incredibly existential threat. I mean, I don't think the networks are in any risk at this point of losing the NFL completely. But if you look at linear television right now, Sportico had a nice little graphic this morning that in 2022, of the top 100 telecasts, 82 of them were NFL games. And so that's why people are showing up to watch that television on the wall at a certain time. It's almost entirely NFL. Now, there were also some World Cup games. There was like, you know, Kentucky Derby some NBA games, but it's really the NFL and television, you know, they're like the clownfish and the anemone. They, they, <laughs> you know, they can't, which is which? I don't know, but they need each other. Yeah. They're symbiotic creatures and they have been for a long time. And the more dire the situation gets for the traditional TV universe, the more important those NFL games are. I mean, the, the, kind of genius of the way the NFL has done their TV rights and their broadcasting rights is they haven't just moved entirely to one new player. They have just keep slicing up little bits of it and mm-hmm. give and selling those off. And so, you know, Amazon, you know, had Thursday Night Football for the first time this season. They didn't get as many views as the previous setup for, which was, you know, the NFL Network and CBS. But they still proved that they could put on these live games. People would show up. Advertisers mm-hmm. would buy the space. The technology worked. And I'm sure everyone is pretty happy about that. I think you're going to see the other major sports leagues. They're already doing it. But like the NBA, they're just going to do the same thing. When their rights are up, they're going to carve out more and more pieces to sell to the Amazons, the Apples, the are we Googles. Are we going to see sports ownership and media ownership more and more overlapping i mean we already see it a bit with like the dolan family with the yankees own like a a tv network is that as live sports becomes more important to to media at some point we're going to see maybe even disney buying i mean i guess they had one did they have a hockey team at some point they you know there have been historic yeah like people have bought (laughs) sports teams but an entire league would be a new thing i think the, the most interesting story right now in media in this field is to watch what happens with WWE, the wrestling, major wrestling promotion, because, you know, that is a $5 billion business. 
it's not sports per se, but it's live action that gets people to sit in the seat at a particular time. They have a very dedicated audience. It's, it's sports. How is it not sports? <laughs> no, it's scripted. It's, it's, drama. All right, it's, it's scripted sports. There's unscripted sports and scripted sports. It's, it's not like, real. Scripted <laughs> sports? What are you talking Felix, about? Felix, I hate to break this to you, but none of it is real. <laughs> Santa Claus is. No. Um, sports is, is spontaneous. You don't know what, no one knows what's going to happen. Well, no one knows what's going to happen in wrestling either. No, except people like know. People. The people doing the wrestling. It's all planned out. <laughs> so if you have by, by the way, down. can I just it's say, like, is, <laughs> there, is there any better word in English than kayfabe? I love that word so much. And it's now politics is completely you know, derived from you know, the, the wrestling world. I think if you haven't been following it, it's worth checking in on the WWE drama just yesterday. So last year, you know, the Wall Street Journal had a series of articles that Vince McMahon, he's the CEO of the WWE, he's been the most important person in the whole wrestling universe for the past 40, 50 years. The Wall Street Journal came out with a series of articles that he had made these payouts uh, you know, over allegations of sexual harassment, inappropriate relationships with coworkers. He retired step back, said, okay, I'm done. I'm, you know, in my late 70s. I'm I'm stepping away. I'm retiring. In the first week of January, news comes out that now Vince McMahon wants to come back in. He wants to unretire. He wants to take control of the whole operation again. He wants to join the executive. And part of the reason for that is because, again, it all comes back to this issue of advertising and TV rights, which is that currently the WWE splits its performances between NBC Universal, they air on Peacock, the streaming service, and USA Network on cable TV, and then Fox, Rupert, has another chunk of, of shows. And that deal is going to be coming up. And so... That puts WWE in this interesting position where they can deliver a very dedicated audience at a particular time, several nights a week, at this time when all the streamers want that, right? So clearly all of these streaming services are going to be fighting over these rights. Except for Netflix, which doesn't do live. But I think they're going to have to move in that direction. And so also, if you look at the share price, the share price for WWE is actually way up over the past year. and that, As a takeover candidate. Yes, because everyone thinks they're going to sell to somebody. And that would be basically the equivalent of one of these companies buying, swallowing an entire league to make it exclusive. And the potential acquirer could be Amazon. Yep. It probably couldn't be Warner Brothers. Discovery because they're too indebted already. They also have a rival wrestling promotion, AEW, which has gotten traction over the past year. Tony Khan, the Khan family, they own the Jacksonville Jaguars. They started this new wrestling promotion. And while WWE has been had this chaotic year with Vince retiring and, you know, they don't have a superstar in wrestling right now. John Cena, you know, he stepped away to go do his Hollywood stuff. WWE always does better when they have one massive superstar, Hulk Hogan, John Cena, The Undertaker. They don't have that right now. So it's kind of opened up the window. There's this new wrestling promotion. It's very tied in with Warner Brothers Discovery. So they see a window and they see an opportunity there. So they would be the one major media tech company that I think would not. They also have too much debt to take on anything more. But everybody else, I mean, it's a $5 billion company. It's like... But, I mean, Tim Cook would never buy a wrestling league. It seems unlikely, <laughs> but, you know, get into it. Someone could convince them. It's, you know, family-friendly-ish these days. 
It's, you know, went through a period where it was a little bit more violent and risque. So t- talking about that back. violence, like how much of the rise of HBO was boxing related and what happened to boxing? That's a good question. Boxing was a key part of the HBO formula in its early days. So when HBO was initially conceived in the 1970s, the idea was the home box office. So it was like anything, we were going to put on the air things that you typically in the past would have had to go out and buy a ticket for. So it was like movies, comedy performances, music concerts, and sporting events. And, you know, the whole time as they were thinking... I I never actually worked that one out. Like, the thing that all of these things have in common is they have little physical box offices where you buy it. Buy it, yeah. Got it, okay. And so, and they were also at the same time trying to figure out how do we counter-program against traditional broadcast television, which at that point, you know, there were three big networks. This is even pre-Fox. So it was just ABC, NBC, CBS. They dominated the free over the market, you know, culture. So they didn't want to go head to head with the broadcast network. So they wanted to do things differently. And at that point in the early 80s, there was the the broadcast networks were backing off of boxing, which was perceived as too violent. It was, you know, advertisers were wary of sponsoring it. And so that left an opening for HBO. They said, well, we don't have advertisers. And at the same time, you know, we're trying to do things differently than the network. We can dive in, pay a huge amount of money for one sport, put it on the air. And, you know, their timing was actually really good because boxing in the 80s was really big. They got right in on the Mike Tyson phenomenon from the early, you know, from the start. They identified Tyson as a rising star. They got him to fight, you know, most of his fights on HBO. There's all sorts of funny stories if you talk to people who were at HBO in the 80s, Mike Tyson was like a presence at the office, you know, like they would sneak him into meetings to like, you know, like jump he, out. He was, the HBO was basically Mike Tyson's employer at that point. Basically. And if you think about it, like he was really their first archetype of what a successful HBO figure was. And I think the evolution from Mike Tyson to Tony Soprano, once you start looking at it, is pretty pretty direct. I love this in your book. I mean, it was so, once you started talking about it, it was so obvious. It was like both Mm anti-heroes, both very tough, but had Mm -hmm. a like heart of gold Mm -hmm. and both obsessed with birds to some degree. (laughs) They love birds. Mike Tyson had his pigeons and Tony had his backyard ducks. Can we take a little um, tangential discussion? Because I read your book, the part of your book, where Howard Cosell, the sports announcer, is calling a boxing match on Mm -hmm. network television, and it's incredibly violent, and Cosell just, like, can't take it anymore and is saying, like, this is awful, et cetera. I think I read that, and then, like, two days later, DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills, you know, got hit Mm -hmm. during a game, and the game stopped, and, you know, there was kind of this moment where everyone was like, oh my God, you know, how can the NFL go on? There's all these stories about how violent it is. And I was thinking how different those two moments are and why Mm -hmm. that would be. And maybe part of the reason is network television is so dependent on the NFL. And like back then they weren't dependent on boxing at all. Anyway, I was hoping you could like talk about it for a second. Yeah, that's a fascinating parallel. And I think part of the difference is that, I mean, with the NFL, every time something 
happens. And this was a very unusual case, but you know, immediately afterwards, people said, "Well, is this going? Are people going to stop watching the NFL because you know, a player almost dies on the field?" But like maybe five, ten years ago, when we started learning about all the brain damage that football mm-hmm. causes and people were having really serious moral conversations with themselves like should I be supporting the sport should I watch this this is inhumane we know it's like these players are going to have long term damage from this and then people kind of just kept watching <laughs> right <laughs> yes. like and we all know it causes brain damage and even so the ratings have not fallen down at all and so I don't know. I'm pretty skeptical that anyone sees this particular episode as horrifying as it was and upsetting as it was. I really don't think it's going to put anything, any kind of dent into NFL viewership. Why is that different than what happened with boxing? I think part of it is in the boxing world, A, you know, there were a series. It was the Howard Cassell fight, but previously there was another fight in which one of the boxers actually died, oh right? He, he got knocked down, hit his head on the canvas, was rushed to the hospital, had brain swelling, passed away. And, you know, uh, watching a human being get killed in the ring by another person uh, yeah. where the intention is, it, it looks as though they're trying to kill them, I think hit people in a really one way. And it did have an impact. You know, the advertisers did back away from it. The sport didn't go away. It mm-hmm. went to HBO. It went to it went away from advertisers and sponsorships. People have made that comparison in the past. Could, you know, American-style football, could the same thing happen to that sport as it did to boxing? And so far that hasn't happened. But I would also say boxing's decline took 20, 30 years mm. Do you think part of it, though, is because you don't see the effects of the in- the injury directly in front of you on the field when you're watching? Yeah. Which is, yeah. yeah, it doesn't show up. I mean, you know, the brain damage typically, yeah, it's, it's 10, 15, 20 years down the road. So it's less dramatic. You can definitely compartmentalize when you're watching the sport. You're not seeing the players you love from 20 years ago in this decrepit, you know, terrible position that they find themselves in. It is a little bit easier to put it out of your mind. I mean, you could say the same thing about ballet is really bad for you, especially if you're a woman. It fucks up your feet. It's really bad for your long-term health. You do really unnatural things to your body. People have known this for decades as well. And that's why I don't yeah. watch ballet. Yeah. <laughs> that's why. It's a moral position on my part. But I, I was also wondering, like, another reason the situation is different now with the NFL than it was with boxing is what we talked about before, which is that the NFL is like existentially necessary to a whole ecosystem of television networks and advertisers and sportscasters. Like they don't have the freedom um, or maybe they feel more restricted in, in doing what Cosell did, you know, decades ago. Like you, you can't do that anymore. You need the NFL. If it's all driven by advertisers, ultimately, um, I think it, there's definitely a case to be made, but tell me if this is true, that advertisers need the NFL way more, like orders of magnitude mm-hmm. more than they ever needed boxing. Completely. Yeah, hugely important. I mean, it's there's not that many. I mean, as the entire cultural landscape has splintered, the opportunities to have mass events with people watching have just gotten fewer and fewer and fewer. And the NFL is really the only thing left that does it at the magnitude it still does it and does it 
you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 weeks a year. What is it? Like, I think Sarah Fisher had a chart over at Axios, but like the 19th most popular NFL game is still going to be more popular than the Oscars. Yeah, way more popular. It can be a terrible game. That's the thing I'll say. Like, that was a horrendous game. It's putting up bigger numbers than anything else. And all those other shows, I mean, it's sometimes fun to watch, like, to go back and look at, like, the ratings for, you know, dramas and cable television just 10 years ago. If you look at, like, what The Walking Dead was, you know, the number of people watching that and then watch that viewership decline. And The Walking Dead for a long time was still the most popular show on all of cable even as its audience dropped by like 80%. I mean, it is pretty wild how the audience is splintered and it's tough to get that back. So yeah, I do think the NFL advertisers are hugely dependent on it. And Fox News is the other thing that has a big audience still, right? Well, let's talk a little bit about Fox because Fox was this major studio. It had massive movie operations. It had massive TV operations. It then sold, what, like 80% of itself to, mm-hmm. to Disney? Yeah. And then that rump 20%, financially speaking, is much smaller. It seems like too small to succeed in mm-hmm. this media landscape of behemoths. But it only does two things, which is news and sports. And it does them both, like, in a pretty dominant way. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Rupert saw the market at its peak and sold. I mean, you know, and he sold all of those cable networks right before they had this huge decline. And if you look at the people that held on, I mean, AMC Networks is a good counterexample. You know, speaking of The Walking Dead, like AMC Network, you know, a few years ago, everyone's like, oh, this is such an incredible business. They have these cable, this cable network. People love watching these dramas. And, you know, they didn't sell at the same time and they held on. And now the Dolans are holding this thing that is, you know, really in trouble because people aren't watching cable anymore. So I think the people Are, are you saying them, that Rupert Murdoch is a savvier businessman than Jimmy Dolan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that that could maybe be said. And, and, you know, he sold those cable networks to Disney at the right time. He decided he was not going to build a giant streaming service, in part because he tried to acquire Time Warner. As you recall, he made a bid. Time Warner fought it off. And after that deal fell through, I think they realized, like, either you're going to be – you have to get enormous. You have to get so big that you can compete with Netflix and the $20 billion a year they're spending on programming or you're going to get wiped out. And without the Time Warner assets, they said, you know what? We're going to sell. We'll hold on to those pieces that are still somewhat work in the cable, you know, traditional TV ecosystem, which is, yeah, news and sports. And those assets still deliver audiences, but they got rid of everything else and let Disney try and hash out what they were going to do with all the streaming services. Let me ask you about the other huge bet that Murdoch made, which is also a much smaller bet that I made. I made a bet with my colleague Nathan Bomey about the box office revenues for Avatar 2, mm-hmm. which <laughs> is just the longest, dumbest, like, video game that you can't play like i mean i haven't even seen it but like i i have yet to meet a single person who likes this movie yeah and i was like this is just going to be a fiasco and it's the opposite of a fiasco it is making enormous box office figures not only globally but even in the united states how does a movie that no one likes make so much money 
I think there's only one logical explanation for this because I've thought about this a lot too. The only logical explanation is that I'm pretty sure James Cameron must have made a deal with the devil at some point. Like I think he had to have sold his soul and then been like everything I make will turn into one of the top ten movies of all time. Because like, yeah, it, it is baffling. And when I, you, I have a theory. Yes. You have a theory? What's your theory? Uh, which is that because I have a seven-year-old and we take him to movies a lot, there was a, a sort of famine of kid-friendly movies and because it's it's animated essentially and it works kind of across age levels. Did I you take your seven-year-old to Avatar? Yeah. Oh Did my like God! It? It's like uh, so he was long. ambivalent about it. Was it? <laughs> also, we let the seven-year-old watch age-inappropriate stuff all the time, and his favorite movie is uh, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. So his tastes are a little weird. <laughs> a sophisticated seven-year-old. I'm impressed he could do the three hours. I don't know. It's also weird that there's two movies, big blockbuster movies, at the same time. With like, as you know, if you watch Black Panther two, there's like a whole race of blue underwater people in mm-hmm. that movie also. Oh my, maybe it's just <laughs> the blue underwater people. I don't people know. Is there some archetype for like, you know, that matters to people? I don't, I can't think of any. It's like the, the Smurfs, they weren't underwater, but they were pretty popular too. I don't know. People like blue creatures. So, okay. So we're on the subject. We've managed to somehow get onto the subject of movie theaters. Yes. They're basically dead, right? That's doomed. It's a tough business, <laughs> I would say. I mean, what do you think? I think movie theaters will survive, but not at the level they were pre-pandemic. I mean, this year, the box office, you know, it was it's missing about a third of what it was before the pandemic. And part of that is because there were less big movies that came out this year. But part of it is there, there are whole sections of movies that feel like you might as well just watch them at home. I mean, my I go to the movie theater basically when I want to take my kids and like get them out of the house and be lazy and not have to actually like entertain them myself. <laughs> and that there's some value in that. And there's some value in seeing things together as a group and on a big screen. But I do think, you know, it's it's just a crazy world for those movie theater chains and you know, AMC has been an incredible story to watch. I think watch Adam Aaron, you know, as the head of this company that went through this huge expansion right before everything fell apart. You know, they bought all these other chains. They were expanding in Europe. And and then it grinds to a halt. They suddenly are holding all these multiplexes everywhere. Nobody's going to the theater. And, you know, they managed to stave off bankruptcy largely through this crazy meme stock phenomenon and by convincing a bunch of retail investors that they should have an affinity for this brand which really is is not very much what historically would you be able to tell the difference between like an AMC theater or a Regal theater like Wait, is is there any difference <laughs> no, no no I don't think so I mean this is one of the interesting things Alamo Drafthouse declared bankruptcy and came out of bankruptcy bigger than when it went in yeah well, I mean you don't see that very often Alamo is a differentiated product though right. I mean I love Alamo and I want Alamo to succeed but in the end Am I willing to drive 40 minutes to go to an Alamo theater to see a movie versus, like, if it's no. 10 minutes to go to an AMC? Like, I'll still choose the AMC. This, this, is, this is why you should live in downtown Manhattan. <laughs> there's, one, there's one just around the corner. <laughs> yeah. You know, Tim Lee, who's you know, the head of Alamo Drafthouse, 
has done an incredible job of making that experience feel different. I mean, not just because of the dine-in food, but because of the, you know, the previews you see ahead of time. There's no advertising. The fact that you feel like you're learning something about cinema by what they show you ahead of time. The cleverness of the the stunts they do. Years ago, I remember I was living in Austin. First time I'd heard of Alamo Drafthouse, they were doing Deep Water, which was one of those like shark movies. And they put a screen on the lake and you got an inner tube and you went out and floated <laughs> on the lake and watched this thing. And then they had people like in little scuba, you know, outfits going down and like grabbing people's ankles and freaking people out. Oh my but there's like cleverness to that. And I think, can they do it on like a scale? At the same level as like an AMC where it's like in every shopping mall across the country. I don't think that's quite possible. No. But also the decline of the movie going experience is also I think it's hard to separate from the decline of the shopping mall experience. So so I have I have a theory about this, which is that the movie going experience has become supersized. And that what we've had in the movies is actually not dissimilar to what we see in like the way that people used to go to the Met or to MoMA to see their Van Gogh shows. Mm -hmm. And now they go to the Van Gogh experience in order to experience it in fully immersive, grand, you know, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. And the, re the, the movies that do big box office are the vibey, immersive, experiential ones, which are very loud and very colorful and don't make you think very hard. And the, you know, le cinéma, as the French would put it, mm -hmm. has absolutely moved into people's homes where they have incredibly great sound systems now, incredibly great televisions. And what's more, you can, you are much less constrained in terms of time. So you don't, you're not in this world where three and a half hours is a long movie. You're in a world where how long is, you know, I, as a standard series like White Lotus is eight hours long. Mm -hmm. I think Stranger Things is like 13 hours or something. Mm -hmm. You have so much more time to do like highbrow things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, to bring it back to HBO, I think like the, you know, when HBO decided to start making serialized shows in the mid 90s, I think one of the things that made a huge difference culturally is they decided, you know, we're going to basically take a page from independent movies and a lot of those creators that made those early HBO series they were people who worked in broadcast television who had had success in broadcast television were really sick of the rules of working in broadcast television and basically had these fantasies of going off and making indie movies and HBO said yeah you know you can come over here and make your indie project with us you know, which is what happened with Darren Starr and Sex and the City. You know, he didn't think that was going to be a big hit. He thought of it as a little indie project. David Chase, who'd worked in broadcast television forever, you know, that was the pitch again with HBO. Come here and, like, we'll let you do what you always wanted to do, only instead of making an hour and a half, you know, you'll get 10 hours to do it. And at the same time, we'll give you a huge amount of money to put on the screen. We can't pay you as much. You're not going to get the residuals down the road. There's not going to be the syndication that you would have made from broadcast television. But we are going to give you money to go shoot out in the field. You're going to be doing this, you know, you, Dave, with David Chase and the Sopranos, you know, you can go out and do a lot of exterior shots in New Jersey. You don't have to do it on a soundstage in Los Angeles. And that feeling that look that 
whole movement of what you went to independent film to see very quickly migrated to television. And you started, you know, having these shows, the prestige dramas where you're like, yeah, like I can get that same adult level of exploration of people's psyches and relationships and cultural movements. And I can get that at home and I don't have to go to the theaters. And then, and then like once a quarter or so, I will want to do something dumb and immersive and I'll go and see Maverick or go and see Avatar and that will be my movie going experience. Yeah, take the whole family out and like go to the theater and see something big. And, you know, ideally at an IMAX. Yes, 3D with little blue people swimming. Yay, 3D (laughs) blue people. We should have a numbers round. Yes. Elizabeth, do you have a number? I do. Uh, The American Time Use Survey came out. BLS releases it. Well, what's the number? So the, the number is 4.4, which is the amount of happiness that people in agricultural, forestry, and logging rate on a scale of 1 to 6 as okay. the, the amount of happiness they experience in their job. And that puts them at the top of the time use survey in terms of careers that make people the most happy. I, I can tell you that, you know, for reasons which we are not going to go into, I, I wind up seeing a bunch of people chopping logs on TikTok. And, th- and, those, and those people seem very happy. Maybe they've seen the survey because lumberjacks are at the top of it. And at the bottom of it are people who work in finance and insurance who rate their jobs as a 3.6 on happiness and a 2.9 on levels of stressfulness. Yeah. Quit your finance job and go chop logs. You know who did that? Neil Kashkari. Do you remember that? When he, at the end of the financial crisis, he, he left the U.S. Treasury and he decided he was burned out. And then there was this big Washington Post profile of him, like in a lumberjack shirt with an axe, like chopping <laughs> things in the in the forest, because that was his his way of becoming happy. And then, well, if and anybody, then he decided he was going to run for Senate in California. So I, he obviously didn't learn anything. I would say if anybody was likely to see a survey like that and give it a try, that that, that is, would be Neil yes, Kashgar. Yes. Emily, do you have a number? I do. I have a number. I stole it from Felix's book, not you, Felix Salmon. Um, (laughs) My number is $100,000. That is how much money Candace Bushnell made, according to Felix's book, Mm -hmm. from Sex and the City on HBO, which is not a lot of money compared to what everyone else Is she going to go back and like try and get more? I think it's too late. (laughs) It's way too late. (laughs) She sold the rights to to Darren Starr after she... you know, written a profile of him for Vogue. And yeah, it ended up being a terrible deal when you think about just the vast amounts of money that were made from that show. How much? How would you calculate that? Uh, there were, Who so, made the there most were a lot of show. revenue streams. I, HBO made Jimmy a ton Chew. of money for that because that was like peak <laughs> DVD era also, where if you had a successful series, like in addition to all of the new subscribers that HBO got, you know, they also would every season make a collector DVD series and sell it to you for some absurd amount of money, like $100 mm-hmm. for like eight discs. And you'd be like, ooh, I got one season how, for $100. How much How much Pure would money. Darren Starr have made from that show? Just, uh, you know, a lot more than $100,000. I mean, also— I mean, more than $100 million? No, I don't. I don't know. I mean, you have to also think about the movies that came out afterwards. I don't think he made a hundred million dollars, but tens of millions of dollars. That seems more reasonable. And HBO made a ton of money. And I think, you know, Candace looks back at that and and feels like it was 
You know, she got a terrible deal out of that. She was not coming from the world of television. You know, she didn't really even care that much about the television side of it, to be honest, which is kind of funny to look back at that side. And part of the fun of interviewing her and hearing about her experience was just how little she cared about where the TV rights were going to end up or, you know, it was just so... She sold a bunch of extra books off that too, right? Yeah, 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 she did. And she had she had much success afterwards also. So, so she turned out fine. Yeah, she did fine. But <laughs> relatively speaking. <laughs> relatively speaking. It follows part of yeah. the pattern that we didn't get to talk to you today, but maybe some other time about, about, about like how, how HBO favored male oh, founders and male so. geniuses. Yeah, much so, and you yes. could argue Candace Bushnell was a yes, woman. I think it is part and, of a, yeah. a broader pattern that played out that, you know, before we wrote the book on HBO, it was really not something I was aware of or even how we pitched the book, but it was one of the most fascinating things about learning about HBO's history was just how incredibly sexist and misogynist of an environment you know, existed at Time Warner and Hollywood in the 70s and 80s and how that impacted all these incredibly talented women who were executives and show creators who passed through there and also what you ended up seeing on the screen, you know, and, and really a legacy that continues to this day. I mean, I think a lot of it was very explicit in HBO's early days that it was conceived of as a network for men and pandered a lot of times to male tastes. And then over time, that idea did become less explicit. But in some ways, I think you can still find the kernels of that in the culture at the company today and also in what you see on the screen. Well, I mean, the company today is Warner Brothers Discovery, which mm -hmm. is run by David Saslav, who notoriously does these, like, guys' dinners out in the Hamptons. <laughs> like, the entire yeah. senior management is all men. Yes. I mean, is it even more male-heavy now than it was before? I would say at a corporate level, yes. Within the HBO specifically network, I think one of the good things about HBO now is that they're much, you know, the the program inside is really, Casey is the head of it, but there's women who are running comedy, documentaries, drama. And I think you see how important that is when you see how many more female protagonists you have on the screen. Yeah. Big Little Lies. That Big Little Lies, Mayor of Easton. Hacks. Um, Hacks, um, you know, uh, I May Destroy You, Sharp Objects. There really has been a huge shift towards female protagonists often investigating the misdeeds of terrible men. <laughs> I will say the caveat to that whole thing, and, and, you know, on one hand you say, well, it's great progress and it's not just like the same male antihero in every single one of these shows. At the same time, it is amazing when you start looking at it how many of those shows – particularly the dramas, still have male creators and male showrunners. Mm. And the largesse that HBO famously gives to its creators in terms of creative freedom really has not extended to women. I mean, and it's, it's really a shame because, yeah, it's crazy when you look back. I mean, one of the people we interviewed for the book was that I found fascinating was Cynthia Mort, who is one of, still to this day, one of the few women who created a hour-long drama for HBO, Tell Me You Love Me. And, you know, when you talk to her about that experience, she just says, like, yeah, it's just like every decision goes against women at that network, and there's a huge legacy of it. Um, do you have a number? You know, since uh, we were talking about the subject, I thought a good number to remind everyone of was $246 million, which is what 
David Zaslav his compensation for 2021. Wow. $246 million. Okay. So as we enter this era of streaming austerity, which we've all watched somewhat with horror over the past couple months, oh, we got to, you know, HBO Max has to tighten its belt and, you know, we got to get serious and stop spending so much money and we're going to remove shows from this streaming service and which is just really unfair and terrible to the creators and the artists who worked on these shows, who sold them to HBO and HBO Max, to see those their work removed, I think, is, is awful. And it's, I think, particularly galling to people to have to go through this. You know, the, yeah, the company's going to save some money, you know, that there's tax benefits and they don't have to pay out these residuals to actors and, and creators and uh, crew members. And it is a little bit galling when you look back at, like, how much money is being made by the people at the top of this company. And I think the $246 million for one year, 2021, you know, leading up to this creation of, of Warner Brothers Discovery really sticks in my craw a little bit. I mean, yeah. I, I, think, I think $5 million a week seems about fair. <laughs> I normally allow the guests to go last when it comes to the numbers round, but I'm, I'm keeping my number for last because really it's like a softball alley-oop for you. Mm -hmm. My number is 1965, which is a year. And it is a sports-related number. It is the year that pickleball was invented wow. <laughs> by three friends of Bill Gates Sr. Yes. in Washington. This is going to wind up taking over the world, right? It's pickleball. How, how did it suddenly... Yeah, 1965, <laughs> no one's ever heard of this sport for, you know, 50 years and then suddenly the pandemic hits and suddenly everyone you know is playing pickleball and it's exploding and, you know, millions of people are deciding they want to become late-in-life pickleball players and all these networks are rushing to add pickleball leagues and you have LeBron James going out to buy a pickleball team and Gary Vee, I just saw he picked up a, a pickleball team. It's like after you get your NFTs and you get your... You know, your Bitcoin and your various cyber, you know, your cryptocurrencies, like the next thing you have to do is then invest in pickleball. And it does feel very 2022-ish. And it is kind of bizarre, a little bit that I don't know if I can think of an equivalent of a sport that was invented, did nothing for half a century and suddenly caught fire. Can I just ask what is pickleball? How do you play it? I, I really, all I know is it's like Why noisy. is it called pickleball? Yeah. What, it's, it's what, it's can you just sport. explain it to me? So it's basically a smaller version of tennis with like oversized table tennis racket. Yeah. That's it? And a wiffle ball. And so it's like easier to hit the ball. Yeah. It's easier to hit the ball. And you don't move around as much. You don't have to move around oh, as well, much. Oh, I get it. It started off with like in the Sun Belt. With uh -huh. retirees, Old it started out in, in literally in like Seattle mm -hmm. with Bill Gates, his dad, and Bill <laughs> Bill Gates has been playing pickleball all of his life. <laughs> Another deal with the devil, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> on which note, I think we'll wrap up the main part of this show. Felix, thanks for coming on. It's been so much fun. My pleasure. We are going to have a Slate Plus segment on Felix. This is coming up in YouTube. Nice. But for everyone else, thanks for listening. Thanks for sending in your emails to slatemoney at slate.com. Thanks to the combination 
of Jessamine, Molly, and Anna Phillips for producing. And we will be back next week with more Slate Money. Don't you think, thank Ben for working the board? <gasps> oh, and thanks, Ben, for working the board. So, like, how should we think about YouTube? And and how should we think about Felix Kielberg, who's, who turned out to be like a Nazi? He definitely had some issues <laughs> and uh, got himself into some trouble. Uh, I think the thing about YouTube is that it is a fascinating case study in what happens when you do remove all gatekeepers, all human editorial control, turn the keys over to the public to make whatever they want, and essentially let the algorithms decide what everyone's going to see. And I think a lot of it turned out to be slightly horrifying. I just am reading an incredible new book by one of my colleagues, Mark Bergen, called Like, Comment, Subscribe, which is really, really well done about the history of uh, YouTube's business and culture. And also kind of horrifying when you see all the opportunities they had to watch as, you know, these very powerful you know, misogynistic subcultures took root, racist subcultures took root and spread across the platform. And many times when people inside the company thought, well, should we be doing something about that? And again and again, coming back to this weird new idea that I think is fascinating in, in contemporary American life, like, oh, no, we're for free speech. Even though every piece of speech is monetized. So it's really not about like free speech at all or the right to free expression. It's really about like the ability to monetize any kind of speech and whether or not that should be done. Do you have a feeling for whether YouTube is even profitable? Yes, it's it very is. profitable. Because yeah. there was a period there where it was like bringing in enormous amounts of revenue and not amazingly not making money because it was because they were passing through a bunch of the ad revenue to creators, but also just because the expense of delivering all yeah. of that video, which we see at Netflix as well, is enormous. And I do wonder as well whether a large part of the reason why Netflix doesn't do live is just because it's too expensive for them. It is hugely expensive. I think there is a really pivotal moment in YouTube's history where they essentially decided that instead of optimizing for views, they were going to optimize for watch time. And they were also simultaneously going to take all the machine learning that they've been working on and essentially allow the algorithms not just to recommend what people would watch next, but also how to deliver ads. And it is really fascinating. I did not know this before reading like, comment, subscribe, but there was a feeling that, well, there's got to be some trade-off where you put more advertising into these videos, you know, pre-roll videos, and you're going to have, you're going to, decrease the amount of time that people spend watching. So they were thinking, well, how much can we put on there? Um, let's do these experiments. And amazingly, what they found out is when they went with the machine learning to optimize watch time and advertising, the algorithm pretty quickly figured out how to expand both at the same time. So there wasn't a trade-off. And, uh, you know, but the way it did that was often by just directing viewerships towards the most emotionally wrenching and inciting material 
And, you know, as a result, as everyone kind of chased money and chased revenue, you saw basically like this entire world migrate from AM talk radio onto YouTube. And you saw this whole cultural, you know, movement take place that kind of capitalized on that got really good at attracting the attention of young men in particular and monetizing it by any means necessary. And the means were really, really, really ugly when you started looking at them. Yeah. They were also like, I have to just like, it's not ugly, but it is astonishing in terms of if, from the creator point of view, what you need to do to be successful on YouTube. I remember reading this thing a few weeks ago, a few couple months ago saying that Mr. Beast, bless mm -hmm. him, yeah. has seven full-time people working just on his thumbnails. <laughs> yeah, he's very big into those thumbnails. And, uh, you know, Mr. Beast, I think, is a, is a positive example that I think YouTube as a business would like to say, hey, look at this. It's, it's mass cultural entertainment. It's a next generation. It's fun. It's competitions. It's, you know, about winning money. It's, you know, family friendly. It's not misinformation. But it's, you know, that's always been kind of the you know, the head, the, the most prestigious part of YouTube. <laughs> Mr. Beast is, is, the, <laughs> is the, the, the wire. It YouTube. is, yeah. it is, basically. And then wow. you get down into the behind the scenes of some of the more murky stuff. And, and, you, and you find and like... Pandemic you know, or... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and all those vast amounts of misinformation. And yeah. that's still... And, and, and Nazis. And, yeah, and occasionally some, some Nazis in there. And still, you know, all that video game. I mean, that entire genre didn't really exist before they made the switch to optimizing watch time. So part of the reason those whole videos, which PewDiePie, our fellow Felix, became the king of, part of the reason that genre took off is because, you know, you sit there and play the video game and, you know, cost nothing basically to make a 40-minute video and people would watch it. They're used to watching, playing video games for long amounts of time. And people would stay with those videos for, for you know, long amounts of time, especially compared to, you know, the previous era of what was doing well on, on YouTube. Which Charlie was, bit my finger. Yeah, Charlie's viral videos, little short things, this wacky does, comedy routine this skits. Plain avatar, doesn't it? If people will watch Twitch for an hour and a half or PewDiePie mm. for an hour and a half, they will, they'll watch Avatar for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> Even some seven year olds, apparently, <laughs> which is impressive. Yeah. Felix, thanks again. My pleasure.